So I, I have to confess, this week uh, I definitely caught the Christmas bug, and I recognize it is way too early to be catching the Christmas bug, and some of you I can see from your faces are already groaning, and for those children who are here this morning, we are forever away from that day, so just ignore everything that I'm saying right now. Um, but it was, it was probably just the confluence of a number of different things, beginning to look at, at Christmas service plans, things like that. This afternoon, I'm putting Christmas lights up on my house. So there's just a number of factors that, man, early on in the week, all of a sudden it started to hit me, and I began to think, I really want to hear Christmas music. Um, however, we, we have a strict rule in our household that there shall be no Christmas music or celebration of Christmas until Black Friday. So, um, so, so I was faithful. I did not click my Christmas Spotify playlist. I did not listen to Christmas music, though I, I, I do confess I did slip in one area. I began to think through Dickens' classic, The Christmas Carol. I mean, how can you not? It's such a wonderful story, right? Um, which many of you are quite familiar, of course, with A Christmas Carol. Um, the, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, um, a man, an elderly gentleman, very miserly, very angry, bitter towards the world, right? He, uh, he treats everyone poorly and such. And then, and then a few days before Christmas, he is visited by the ghost of his closest, shall we say, friend. I don't know that they were actually friends per se, but uh, Jacob Marley. He gets visited by Jacob Marley, and Marley gives him this warning. Ebenezer Scrooge, if you continue on in the route that you are going, if you are continue to do the things that you have been doing, treating people so poorly, such a negative dour attitude, all of that, if you continue on in this direction, this is what's coming for you. And so in an effort to turn Scrooge, in an effort to turn his personality, to turn his attitude, um, throughout the course of the night, he is visited by three more ghosts, of course, which we know well, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future, um, all in an effort to right Scrooge's understanding of both himself and his life and the world around him. This week, we are continuing on in our, in our study of the book of Colossians. As we've gone through the book of Colossians, we've been able to see Paul, the author, we've been able to see him pushing back against a heresy, against false teachings that have crept into the Colossian church. These false teachings have attempted to, to, to steer the Colossian believers, to steer their eyes away from Christ and to other things. Today, more than any other day, Paul doubles down on this theme, and, uh, and he's going to do something, I think, similar to what we see in Dickens' story, to see in Dickens' uh, novella, where Paul is actually going to take us on a whirlwind tour to attempt to reorient our understanding of who we are and the world around us through showing us the past, the present, and the future. This morning, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and we'll be discussing the topic of how the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is Christ, present, past, and future. All of it can be summed up in him. Um, I'm stealing the outline or borrowing. We'll say borrowing since I'm preaching. That sounds nicer. Um, I'm borrowing the, my outline from, uh, from St. Patrick's hymn. Um, we'll be looking at Christ with me, Christ behind me, and Christ before me. 
as we look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Um, if you go ahead and open your Bibles, we'll read our passage together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be gathered around your word, to, to sing praises to you, to pray to you, Father, to, 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 to worship and to adore you. Father, I pray that as we spend this time in your word, God, that your spirit would be working in our minds and our hearts, Lord, leading us into a right understanding of your word. Father, leading us into a right response to your word, God, that even this time would be a time of worship and adoration of you. Because, Father, you are worthy and you are glorious and you above all things are worthy to be praised. And so, God, please just lead us during this time. God, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So when we, left, when we left off last week, Paul was finishing his discussion of this false teaching that was, going through, that was going through the Colossian church. It permeated its way in attempting again to deter the eyes of the Colossian believers from a right understanding of the gospel and of Christ and to try to steer them towards false practices, towards things that the Colossian believers weren't called to do, towards things that were meant to bring them into a deeper relationship with God but they were fruitless things. They were things that wouldn't actually pay off on what they were promising. And so Paul has been attempting, again, to paint a portrait, to paint an understanding of Christ as Christ being exalted and being above all things and being supreme. And, and the, really, to truly understand what we are called to as Christians, we look first and foremost to Christ. And looking at our passage this morning, he begins then with Christ with me. We'll see this as we look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. That's, a, that's an odd way to begin. If you have been raised with Christ. Well, if you go back to chapter 2 and the last paragraph that we looked at, beginning in verse 20, it notes there, if you died with Christ. So as Paul is painting a picture of who the Colossian believers are, what their present state of things are, he begins by describing them as having died with Christ, and then he moves on to talking about them being raised with Christ. Now, obviously, obviously, the Colossian believers haven't literally died, right? The Colossian believers aren't actually dead. As Paul's describing this, he's describing a spiritual reality, a spiritual reality that the Colossian believers have experienced. This isn't dead in some kind of a Halloween sense of dead, walking dead, zombie sort of thing, but this is a sense of being born into new life. They have died with Christ, and they have been raised, born anew. This is your current state if you are a Christian. You experience a new life even now, if you've trusted in him, that new life comes from being connected to Christ. 
And so what do we do with this new life then? What do we do with this new life that we experience? The, this heresy, this false teaching has told, the, has told the Colossian believers that they're supposed to follow all of these things. That they're supposed, to be, they're supposed to be legalists. They're supposed to be mystics. They're supposed to be ascetics. That's what the false teaching has been telling the Colossian believers. Paul instead paints a very different picture. Paul says that we are to seek the things above. Seek the things above. I mean, that sounds really mystical, right? That sounds, that sounds really mystical. I thought Paul had just told us in the previous chapter that we're not supposed to be seeking the things above, and now he's telling us to seek the things above. It's because when I think of seeking the things above, I think of things like what Paul describes in the last chapter, the worship of angels, going on about visions and things above, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Those are the things my mind automatically connects with. But when Paul tells us to seek the things above, he's connecting it to something very different. Something very different. He's connecting it to Christ, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To seek the things above is to seek the things of Christ. Why is he described as being seated at the right hand of God? Because this is a picture drawn from the Psalms of Christ and his rule and his authority. For us to seek the things above then is to set our minds and our hearts upon him and to seek his things first and foremost. So then the Christian life isn't life about the worship of angels. It's not, it's not about visions. It's not about things like that. It's about Christ. He is the center of the Christian life. And note here the imperatives to seek and to set our minds on. Those are, those are both present tense things. This is a continuous, progressive sort of thing. Not something that I did once and then, and then I'm done with and I can do away with and I don't have to worry about it anymore. These are things that I continue to do. These are things that, are, that we're called to continue to mark the Christian life. This seeking includes not just the mind, right? It would be easy to think that this is just some kind of a philosophical sort of like, I just need to think really hard about Jesus and that's what I'm supposed to do. But it's not just a, it's not just a cognitive thing. This is, this is something that includes the mind and the heart and the hands, the actions. It includes the fullness of our person. The, um, um, this is being shaped in your way of thinking, your emotional life, your pattern of attitudes and responses, your preferences in people and TV and social media and the clothes that you wear and the jobs that you do and the leisure that you enjoy so that you are formed in the realities of who you are formed in all areas, all areas of life by the reality of Christ so that everything is in submission to him. First and foremost, it's about treasuring Christ, treasuring Christ until it explodes in a life of honoring him. This is what Paul's talking about when he talks about seeking the things above and setting our minds upon him. Not just a cognitive thing, it's a cognitive, affectional, applicational sort of life. Everything being devoted to Christ. Now, this is the positive side of the coin. This is the positive. But there's a negative side as well. 
Yes, we're called to set our minds and our hearts and focus on Christ, but that means putting aside something else. That means putting aside something else. That means putting aside the things that are on earth. Okay, again, it would be really easy to read this and to quickly fall into some kind of a mystical trap as though, okay, so the things on earth, so that, that's like the mundane things of life, right? That's, that's like my job and my emails and, my, and the things that I don't really like to do and mowing the yard, that's definitely a mundane thing of life. So, so I, can, I can set aside those things of the world, right? Well, no, that, that's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about the things that are on earth. Rather, he actually gives a fairly full description of what he means in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 5. But that's in Pastor Jason's sermon next week, so I don't want to steal his sermon, though it is difficult. It's just so tempting. It's right there. Um, So so I don't want to steal his sermon for next week. But I, I will note really briefly that in summary fashion, when Paul's talking about the things that are on earth, he's talking about sin. He's talking about sin those temptations of the world, those things that want to lead us away from Christ, those things that God has called us to not take part in. That's what he's talking about here. So he's telling us to to, to lay aside those things, to lay aside those things, to turn our eyes from those things to the beauty and to the glory of Christ. There is both a negative and there is a positive side to the Christian life. And this this is a summary of who we are in Christ and what we are currently called to as believers. So the Christian life is described really simply as a life of adoring Christ and hating our sin. It's a life that strains to live out the realities of Christ while seeking to put to death the worldly realities of sin in this world. So the Christian life isn't a passive life. It's not a life that says something along the lines of, I made a decision when I was really young, and I, I, I hold some fundamental truths, and boom, that's, that's it. That's the Christian life, right? No, no, it's not. That's not the Christian life. That, that description, that picture of a Christian life is totally foreign to Paul. Paul doesn't know of any Christian life like that. The Christian life is the life of struggle. It's the life of seeking to put to death these sins and seeking to live for Christ. Not a life of laziness, not a life of lethargy, not a life of stagnancy. It's a life of growth in Christ. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked to comment on the spiritual life, he's a... uh, 19th century pastor and theologian, when he was asked to comment on the spiritual life, he described it this way. He said, he said that the spiritual life is it's like you have these two dogs. It's like you have these two dogs that are at war with one another, that are biting each other and fighting each other. One dog is the dog of the flesh. The other dog is the dog of the spirit. And they just continue to go back and forth and to battle in the Christian's heart. When Spurgeon was asked, well, which dog wins... His response was simple. It's the dog that you feed. The dog that you feed is the one that wins. This fight to set our mind, is to set our minds on Christ and to turn from the worldly things. And it's only possible because of the life of Christ that nourishes us. 
This was Jesus' point in John 15, 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It is only through Christ and his nourishing work in our connection with him that we can live out this spiritual battle, this spiritual fight. But not only do we need Christ with me to live out this Christian life, we also need Christ behind me. I need Christ behind me. Paul describes it this way, verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So again, we see in verse three, it begins with this four. This four is giving us the reason the reason why we can enjoy the present spiritual life, the reason why we can continue to fight on as Christians is because of this, is because of this, this reason, this foundation that we have died. Again, when it talks about our death, this isn't being literal, this is metaphorical. And what it means is it means that death points to our conversion. Death for the Christian is when we die to the things of this world and embrace the things of God. We turn to Jesus in faith. That's the death that's being, that's being spoken about here. Well, why does Paul describe it as death then? Well, he describes it as death because we die to the things of this world at that moment. Because according to Romans chapter 6, our sin is no longer our master when we die with Christ. Because according to earlier on in Colossians 2, we find forgiveness from the penalties of our sin when we die with Christ. Because the last paragraph in Colossians chapter 2 tells us that because we are freed from the elemental spirits of the world when we die with Christ. That's why Paul describes it that way. So we have died we have died to our old masters. We have died to the things that we were enslaved by. We have died with Christ. And this opens the door for new life, for new freedom, for a resurrection life that we enjoy with Christ. So it's necessary for us to spiritually die with Christ in order to enjoy this. But this is all possible, dying and rising with him, because as Christians, our life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting expression. I got asked previously this week, why does it say that we're hidden with Christ? I thought, I mean, I think I've heard ever since I was young and in Sunday school that we're not supposed to hide, that we're supposed to be transparent, that the world is supposed to know about our faith and our convictions. But here, Paul is describing us as being hidden. I didn't think we were supposed to be hidden. I thought we were supposed to be transparent. Well, yes, absolutely we are. The, the being hidden here isn't in terms of our relationship to the world. The being hidden here is about our relationship in Christ. When Paul talks about the necessity of being hidden in Christ, he's talking about our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Union is the fundamental language that Paul uses and that really the other New Testament authors use to describe our relationship with Jesus. We have been united with him. So when your Bible says things like, we are in Christ, or Christ is in us, or we are the body of Christ, or we are one with Christ, language like that, all of that is union language. 
We are united with him. That is our relationship that we currently enjoy with him. I was trying to wrestle with thinking of a really good illustration to describe this uh, this week, and, and I entirely failed. But I think the best thing that I came up with, the best thing I could come up with is thinking about, so my, my wife and I, we got to take a, uh, a trip to Greece earlier this year, which was, which was absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, obviously, for us to take this trip to Greece, we had to get into an airplane. We had to get into an airplane to be able to go to Greece and to enjoy the benefits of Greece and to be able to enjoy all the, the, the greasiness. Um, it wouldn't have worked for us to have been next to the plane. It wouldn't have worked for us to be un- definitely not under the plane. Um, in my, my daydreams, sometimes I think about being on the plane, and I feel like that would be a really fun thing, but I, 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 think, I think everyone else would tell me, no, that's a bad thing also. Um, we, we had to actually be in the plane to enjoy the benefits of where the plane was taking us. That's the reality with Christ. That's the reality of Christ. For us to have a relationship with God, for us to enjoy the future and the glory and the beauty that he offers, we have to be in Christ. And this happens when we become Christians, when we put our faith in him. This union with Christ then, it's our past. This union with him is our present and it's also our future. Um, So interestingly enough, Tomorrow, tomorrow, October 31st, many of you know it well for, of course, being Halloween. Um, but I, I argue that there's actually a better, more significant event tomorrow than Halloween, and that's Reformation Day, um, which is an amazing thing. I see some heads nodding vigorously, so I know some of you are excited about that, and I don't stand alone, which is nice. Thank you for that. Um, Reformation Day. Reformation Day is the, it's the day that we remember the beginning of the Reformation. In 1517, on October 31st, Martin Luther, a theologian pastor, nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in protest against Roman Catholicism, or more specifically, some Roman Catholic teachings which he perceived to be steering the church away from salvation by grace through faith. That was the beginning, or what we commonly note as the beginning of the Reformation. Hugely significant um, period in history and even for the church. And uh, along with Luther, a number of other reformers sought first and foremost to see the Roman Catholic Church reform and and to embrace, again, a right understanding of salvation. Um, Eventually that became impossible, so they split off and protested, and a number of Protestant churches came into existence, which is ultimately where, where our church came from um, many, many, many years later. Um, but one of the fundamental issues for the Reformation, they, they, they summed up this issue by saying solus Christus, which means Christ alone. It's a Latin expression for Christ alone. And one of the reasons why that was so fundamental for them is because in the Roman Catholic teaching, they were saying that for us to, for, for the Christian to, um, to, to eventually enjoy salvation, the Christian had to bring merit of their own into their relationship with God. What Christ had done was not sufficient in and of itself. The Christian had to produce themselves as well. And they did that through sacraments. They did that through other things, attempting to add merit so that they could eventually enjoy heaven. 
That was, that was the Roman Catholic thought. The reformers rightly responded and said, uh-uh. Um, they rightly responded and said, no, it is in Christ alone. Christ is the one who paid the debt. We can't add to what Christ has done. Christ doesn't need anything added. He has paid it all, right? All to him I owe. Um, there is nothing that we can add. So, so that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing that we need to add. This is the same argument that Paul is making in this passage. There is nothing that we can add. By raising empty hands of faith, we are justified because Jesus paid it all. And it is through our union with Christ that we can enjoy all the treasures of eternal life and grace of God. If I, if I hadn't gotten on that plane this summer to Greece, I would not have gotten to Greece, all right? I, I can run a decent distance, and it would not have taken me to Greece. I, I can drive a long ways, but apparently there's an ocean between us and Greece that I don't drive very well on, and I'm not a very good swimmer, so I definitely was not going to be able to swim to Greece. There was one route, one way that I could enjoy all of the enjoyments of Greece, and that was by, by being in the plane. That is the same way with our union in Christ. It is all about him. So, so Christ's past work in the believers, Christ behind me, has made a way for Christ's ongoing work in our life, Christ with me. But Paul doesn't end there. Paul doesn't end there. He's touched on our current state in Christ and what's supposed to characterize us in the present and the struggle between the two, between the two principles, between the two dogs, right? He's described the present. He's described the past and how, and how our relationship with him is established. It's established in our death with him, our freedom from the bondage of sin, and it's established through our union with him, being united with him so that now we can enjoy all of the benefits of eternal life and his grace in our relationship with him. But now he looks ahead, and we catch a glimpse of the future. We catch a glimpse of Christ before me. Verse 4. <clears throat> when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul points to the future hope of the Christian. Paul continues to use this language of union. This is so fundamental to Paul and to our passage today. Christ is our life. He is our life. Paul's made the similar point in other places, like Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul made a an, even, an even closer point in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So with Paul, we echo, it is no longer I who live this life, but Christ. Christ is our life. We are united with him. It is all about him. And Paul is waiting for his appearance. When Christ, who is your life, appears. When Christ appears. This appearance that Paul refers to here. This is the second coming of Jesus. This is the thing that we as Christians wait for in anxious anticipation. Right? Christ died. He rose. He ascended to be with the Father with the promise that he would come back again. 
he would come back and he would take us to be with him. This is the great Christian hope. And we hope for this because we recognize this world isn't right. This world isn't what it was meant to be. This world is broken. And not only is the world broken, but we're broken. We struggle with fears, frustrations, anger, discontentment, broken dreams, broken bodies. This world isn't what it was meant to be. We've been given a taste of heaven in the person of Christ and in our union with him. And through the Holy Spirit that resides in us, we have this taste. And this taste only creates an eager longing for what's coming when Christ comes again. I think it was even just, just yesterday, South Korea, there was an incident where over 150 people died. This world isn't right. But Christ is coming, and Christ will fix that. He will fix that. There is a day coming when he will wipe away every tear. And as so Christians, we eagerly wait for that day when we will see him and finally know him as we are known. Notice, notice here in this last verse, Paul's assumption. Notice his assumption in this verse. If you are a believer, if you have died with Christ, if you are currently raised with Christ and living the Christian life, then you will appear with him in glory. There is the assumption of assurance here. Those who are in Christ, past, present, will also be in Christ future. There is a confident assertion that he will finish. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. He will not leave you forsaken. Why? Um, uh, Philippians chapter 2, he, uh, um, for it is him who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Christ is at work in you. You are united to him. You have surety in his presence that you will see this day, that you will see glory. And it's, not, and it's not because of the legalistic principles that you've taken part in. It's not because of the mystical experiences that you've enjoyed. It's not because of visions that you've seen. It's not because you're just so nice. It's not because of all the good things that you've done. And it's certainly not because you're so smart. It is not for any of those reasons. The, reasons that we, the reason that we can have confidence that we will see him and that we will taste that glory is because of him, because he is so good, because he is so mighty, because he is so victorious, because he is so great, not because of us, it's through Christ alone. In the hymn, Christ Alone, I, I, I like this stanza. I think this captures the thought well. No, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Amen, Amen indeed. No power of hell no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. There is nothing that can rip apart the union that we enjoy with Christ. At every stage in the Christian life then, at every stage in the Christian life, it's all about Christ. Present, it's Christ. Past, it's Christ. 
future, it's Christ. Even our own spiritual biography isn't our own. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his story and his death and his resurrection and his return. He summarizes our story. Some of you, some of you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You don't know this union. You don't know the joy of the relationship with Christ that I'm talking about this morning. You don't have this kind of confident hope in the future and what Jesus has, has, already, has already accomplished in you, is accomplishing in you, and will accomplish in you. And you don't know that reality. I invite you. I invite you into relationship with Christ. He has paid it all, all to him you owe. There is nothing else. There is no other plane in my illustration that will get you to Greece. There is only one. There is only one route, and it is Christ. And all you have to do is turn to him. Turn to him. Put your faith in him. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Christians, for those of us who are in Christ, who in the present, Christ is with us, I ask you, are you fighting the spiritual fight? Are you, or have you grown lazy? Have you given in? Are you feeding the dog of the Spirit? Are you connected to Christ? Is your mind, is your heart, is your affection set on him on enjoying him, on knowing him, on making him known? Does that define your life? Or are you in a life of lethargy right now, just walking through the paces, just walking through the paces, focused instead on the things of this world? Fight the good fight, because Christ is, in, is, is at work in you. Our minds are to be marinated in Christ so that everything we do has the flavor of his glory. He is the hub of our spiritual life. So Christians, set your minds on Christ because he is your life, past, present, and future. And there is no more glorious future than a future with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, again, we just we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, for what Christ has done for us, past, present, and future. Father, I thank you that my life is hidden with Christ because there is no safer place to be. There is no better place to be than to be able to enjoy his benefits, the benefit of knowing him, the benefit of being in relationship with him. Father, I pray that you would continue to use these realities to drive us to fight the good fight. Lord, to set our eyes upon his beauty and that as we do so, that we would be transformed. Father, we pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen.